You know you're in it when a pastor brings a snack up on stage with him before the sermon. You are in for it today. Hey, uh, we are talking about evil today, and I brought some Dunkin' Donuts with me today, and you may be thinking, man, that's some evil. Either it's in the bag or it's evil that I have it and you don't, but either way, we're talking about evil. I was a little concerned because I left my bag of donuts over there on the pew unattended for a while, and I was kind of concerned it wouldn't be there when I got back, but hey, you're in church, so you chose not to steal my donuts today. I appreciate that. Hey, good morning. Welcome. As you are opening up your Bible or turning it on, join me in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Uh, we welcome those that are joining us online today as well who can't be here physically but are joining us in worship today. Uh, let me just say two quick thank yous while you're finding Genesis chapter 3. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the pew back. Uh, we want that to be our gift to you. If you don't own one, take that one. We're going to be on page 2 in that Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Two quick thank yous. Number one, Trunk or Treat was last Friday night. Um, and in spite of the rain we got early on, it was a wonderful night. Great opportunity to just invest in our community partner there at West Tampa Elementary. So thank you to everybody who had something to do with that. Either you prayed over it or you brought candy or you showed up in a trunk or you helped to share the gospel there. Great job. Your pastor was so proud of you on a Friday night. Just a wonderful opportunity to invest in that community and those families. Um, their new principal was there, and he stayed the entire night, and we're already talking about other ways that our church can partner with them uh, to better that, that uh, school and for us to share the gospel. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Secondly, thank you for encouraging our mission partners last week during our GO conference. To a person, each one of them, absolutely. To a person, each one of our mission partners said thank you. It was such an encouragement for them to be here uh, and to just for our church to love on them and encourage them and uh, for them to challenge us. It was an encouragement to us. I just want to give you a quick update on our Go Conference offering. You guys gave above and beyond. We collected over $16,000 last week alone, and we have an additional $19,000 pledged for missions. That's $35,000 above and beyond for our mission partners. So thank you for being faithful and giving. What a great opportunity that is. So we are in a series of messages on worldview. A worldview is just how you view the world. It's how you see the world. It's how you understand the world. And every worldview has to wrestle with difficult questions, such as what is the origin of life? Is there a God? If there is a God, what is he like? Is history heading in any particular direction. And we've discovered over the last several weeks that there are many and varied worldviews around us. And each one of those, regardless of what your worldview is, must deal with this topic, the topic of evil. Where does evil come from? What is evil? And why is it in the world? Regardless of your worldview, that is an issue that everyone must deal with. And evil is a topic that is difficult to comprehend. It is a topic that is difficult to explain, and it is certainly a difficult subject to cope with. And yet the fact is that evil exists and it is undeniable. No one tries to deny that there is evil. They may try to explain it in different ways, but no one can deny that there is evil in our world. We see it all around us. We see it in the acts of human beings. We see it in acts of nature. The question is, where did it come from? What is the source of the evil that we see in our world? Different worldviews approach it in different ways. If you are a naturalist, if you are an atheist, if you are someone who says there is no divine but everything is physical, then since there is no God, there is also really no good or evil. Everything is just a cultural construct, or everything is just simply a subjective determination. And so if you are a naturalist and eliminate God, then you have a difficult time explaining evil. If you are a pantheist, someone who thinks that everything is collectively the divine, that somehow all of us are just intertwined, everything is intertwined, and that everything is just a spiritual thing, and that there is no physical reality, then if you are a pantheist, then evil is just an illusion. It doesn't really exist. It's just an illusion that you are experiencing. If you are a deist, someone who believes that there is a God who created 
everything, but then has walked away from it, then I suppose you have an explanation for evil, but you don't have a biblical explanation for it. The question we have as Christ followers, the question we have as people who claim to have a biblical worldview and live by a biblical worldview, the question we must wrestle with is this. Did God create evil? Because in our study, we've already seen that God created everything. And so the logical question in our direction would then be, if God created everything, then then God not also create evil. If God is the source of all things, then is he the source of evil? Our short, concise, biblical answer to that question must be emphatically no. Even though God is the author of all things, he is not the author or creator of evil. I'll give you two reasons why I think we can be so confident in that statement. Number one is this, and this is the most important one, because God is completely good, because God is completely holy, because God is completely perfect. Because he is good, because he is completely holy, because he is completely good, everything that he creates is good and holy and perfect. I could take you to multiple passages of Scripture in the Bible to support this. Let me just give you a handful. You may want to jot them down. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, God's eyes are too pure to approve evil, and he cannot look on wickedness with favor. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There is no shifting of God. He is always good. There is no hint of darkness or evil in him. James chapter 1 and verse 13. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt someone with evil. Psalm chapter 5 and verse 4. You are not a God who has pleasure in wickedness. Neither will evil dwell with you. We could go to Isaiah chapter 6 as the prophet has a picture of God seated on his throne, and there surrounding his throne are angels reminding us day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. He is completely pure. He is completely holy. He is without stain. He is without sin. He not only is perfect, but everything he created is perfect. That's number one. Number two, evil is not a thing that it would be created. Let me say that again. Evil is not a thing that was created. Evil has no existence in and of itself. You with me? Evil is not a thing in and of itself. It has no existence. Evil is not the existence of something. Evil is the absence of something. In this particular case, it is the absence of good. It is the absence of goodness. Evil is the absence of holiness. It is the absence of perfection. Just as darkness is the absence of light, and cold is the absence of heat, so evil is the absence of goodness. I brought an illustration with me. It's an evil illustration. (laughs) Some of you haven't been able to take your eyes off this bag since I set it down here. In that bag is complete goodness. Man, in that bag, I mean, if you've ever had... mm, If you have ever had... Can y'all smell that? If you've ever had a hot glazed donut, you know it is nothing but good. It is it 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 is sugar. It is oh it is it is and and then they put glaze on top of it. Mm. It is good, but God is better than a glazed donut. Well, see, God is so good. God is a chocolate glazed donut. Can I get an amen? amen? All right, I hear you. I hear you. All right. This is good. 
This is good. But you know what? God is so good, he's even better than a chocolate glazed donut. God is a clock chocolate glazed donut with sprinkles on it. That's what I'm saying. His goodness just keeps on coming. He is so, so good. Everything about this is good except for one thing. What's this about? <laughs> this is good. Man, this is so good. The absence of this is evil. Are you starting to understand what I'm saying here? <laughs> what am I going to do with this? I don't do chocolate. Now, this is evil. Sorry. That's just, that's just good. I didn't bring a napkin, so I'm in trouble. I just got to... Anybody got any milk? <laughs> so, evil is not the existence of something, I'll get there in a minute, evil is the absence of something. And God has not created evil. God is good. <laughs> Look at Mike. Mike's ever the servant, the deacon coming up and helping me out. You want the donuts? I'll try. <laughs> I'm just going to leave those up there. God did not create evil. From a biblical understanding, God did not create evil. So when somebody asks us, God created all things, he must have created evil. We need to understand, first of all, God is good, and evil is not something that was created. Evil is the absence of goodness, it is the absence of holiness, it is the absence of God. God is not the source of evil, but his creatures who he created have left him out, and therefore we find evil. God created angels, and God created human beings. And he created us in a very special way. He gave us a capacity unlike the other animals. A capacity to have a relationship with him. And a capacity to say yes to him. And a capacity to say no to him. He's given us intellect and free will. And to disobey God is to initiate evil. Because to disobey God is to leave out what God intends to be. To disobey God is the absence of something. It's the absence of God's holiness. It's the absence of God's perfection. And so as we turn to chapter 3 of the book of Genesis this morning, we find that the Bible explains to us the human condition. It helps us to understand the state of human beings and the state of our universe. And it helps to explain why there are so many problems in our world. If God created the world so perfectly, why is there such chaos in our world? Why is there such pain? Why is there such suffering? And we get the answer in Genesis chapter 3. But as we understand that suffering came into the world, we also in Genesis chapter 3 see that God has not abandoned his kingdom. Even though it has been compromised, his creation has been compromised, God does not set it aside. Instead, God has a plan that he will redeem and restore his fallen creation, and he will even use the evil that has come into his world to accomplish his purposes. I'm still salivating from that chocolate. I apologize. Hey, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to read the first seven verses, and we'll look at the rest of the chapter in detail as we go through. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it 
or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Heavenly Father, you created a perfect world because you are a perfect God. And Father, one day you will reset your world, you will restore your world, you will redeem your world and make it as you intend it to be. But Father, right now we live in a fallen world. We live with suffering and pain all around us. And Father, we know that this is not how you intended it to be. We know that you weep when we weep, you suffer when we suffer. And Father, help us to understand that sin is the source of all of this pain and all of this suffering, but Father, you are the solution to our sin problem. Father, thank you for a clear understanding of why we are in the situation we're in through your word, and thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So the world we live in today doesn't appear to be anything like the world that we've read about in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created everything with his voice, and he created it perfectly. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, and he created, and it was good. Not only was it good, it says it was very good. Good means it was perfect. It didn't have flaws. It didn't have problems. When God created creation, there was no disorder, there was no chaos. The world we read about in the beginning was a perfect world. Creation as God intended it to be. No sin, no separation, no pain, no suffering, no war, perfect. But the world we find ourselves in has all of those things. And so let's talk about the setting for a few moments as we look at Genesis chapter 3. The world God created and placed Adam and Eve in was a perfect world. It was his kingdom. And when I say God's kingdom, I just simply mean this. God's kingdom is God's people living in God's place, with God's presence, under God's rules, enjoying the blessings and provisions of God. That's God's kingdom. God's people living in God's place, in God's presence, under God's rules, enjoying God's provision and God's blessing. That is how God created his kingdom to be. And creation was perfect. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God in that garden. Unbroken fellowship. But then chapter 3 happens. And everything collapses. Everything falls apart. Creation was perfect. There was no need to add anything. There was no need to touch up anything. But how did we get to the state we're in now? How did we get to the state where there's so much sin and there's so much pain and there's so much suffering and there's so many diseases and there's so many, there's just so much, how did we get here? The Bible tells us that all men are created in the image of God. That God created us in him in his image, and yet we all know that we fall short of his glory. None of us live up to the image of God. Not a one of us. In short, the Bible says we all sin. And we disobey God, and therefore there is an absence of holiness in human lives. And evil is not the existence of something, it's the absence of something. It's the absence of God's character. It's the absence of God's goodness. It's the absence of God's holiness. It's the absence of God's perfection. And the Bible teaches us that we inherit our sin nature from the first man, Adam. When Adam sinned, he plunged all of humanity into a helpless, fallen state of bondage to sin. 
We are all sinners by nature. We sin because we are sinners. None of us have to teach our children when they're young to be selfish. They do it naturally. We are sinners by nature. We are also, however, sinners by choice. We like to sin. We love us some sin. The light came into the world and the darkness did not acknowledge it because the darkness liked the darkness. That was what was read for us this morning in John chapter 3. We are all sinners by nature and we are all sinners by choice. And while some worldviews would have us believe that mankind started at the bottom and worked our way up to the top through some form of natural selection, the Bible teaches us that we started at the top and we're working our way back down. So again, how did we get to this state? How did we get to be in a world that is so fallen? And Genesis 3 answers that question clearly and concisely. The first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, deliberately disobeyed God. He gave them one rule. He gave them so many provisions. He gave them everything they could possibly need. He just asked them not to do one thing. Not 10 things. Not 613 things. One thing. And they deliberately disobeyed God. And when Adam sinned, he brought death and judgment upon himself and upon all who would follow after him. Every person inherits sin and guilt from Adam. You say, that's not fair. Well, if it wouldn't have been Adam, if it had been John or Bo or Bob or Charles or Dwayne, you'd have done the same thing. And so would have I. And Adam's transgression had a catastrophic effect. It had a catastrophic effect on him, on his relationships, on his environment, and on all of his progeny. That sin had a catastrophic effect on creation. And Genesis chapter 3 is not a fable. Genesis chapter 3 is not a myth. Genesis chapter 3 is not metaphorical. Genesis chapter 3 is not allegorical. Genesis chapter 3 is literal. Adam and Eve were literally created by God. They were literally in a garden. God literally walked with them, and they literally fell. They literally disobeyed him. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. We've seen the setting, this perfect creation that man is in, God's kingdom perfect, and now we find a serpent in the midst of that kingdom. Who is or what is this serpent? The serpent seems to have capacities that the other animals don't have. This serpent has intellect. This serpent can talk. The other animals don't seem to have this capability, but yet this one does. So who or what is this serpent? By considering all the Bible, which is how we should study it, not just piece by piece pulling it out of context, but looking at the whole counsel of God's Word and comparing Scripture with Scripture, we find that this serpent is indeed one who we've come to know as Satan, the adversary. And Satan is a master of disguise. He's a master of deception. The Gospel of John tells us that he disguises himself or masquerades himself as an angel of light. How do I know for sure? You say, how do you know? It doesn't say, and Satan came up to him. Pastor, how do you know that this is Satan? Let me give you a couple scripture verses to reference. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, says the serpent of old the great dragon who was thrown down and deceives the whole world. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2, looking back at Genesis chapter 3, calls him the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So we go from the first book of the Bible, we go all the way back to the final book of the Bible, and the final book of the Bible helps us interpret the first book of the Bible, and we understand that this isn't just any serpent, that this serpent is being indwelled by Satan. 
But then we have to ask this question. Who's Satan? Who is this one that's known as the adversary? Who is this one who is known as the devil? Where did he come from? We all think of him as evil, but we don't know where he came from. So where did he came from? Number one, we need to know this. He is a created being. Satan is a created being. He was not created as evil, but he is a created being. Created just as the other angels were created, just as you and I are created to have a relationship with God, to have the ability to interact with him and to have the ability to say yes to him and the ability to say no to him. And Satan chose to serve himself rather than to serve God. There's a couple passages in the Old Testament that help us to understand this. I would just want to draw your attention to them to this morning. Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we're told that before we meet Satan in the garden, Satan was an angel who served in heaven. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11 I'll read it. You may just want to jot it down as a reference. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper the lapis, luzile, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you are internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as a profane, cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground to be put before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. I, it has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes onto the earth. In the eyes of all who see you, all who know you among the people are appalled by you, and you have been terrified and will cease to be forever. Satan was an anointing cherub, an anointed cherub of God who was beautiful. His beauty was unmatched. And he began to look at himself and said, look how wonderful I am. Why is everybody giving glory to God? I should receive some of that glory. And his pride said, I want to take God off of his throne and I want to be placed there. I want the glory that should be going to God. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will rise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. This serpent wasn't just a snake slithering around in the garden. It wasn't just a, a Komodo dragon running around. This was Satan disguising himself. This was the one who had tried to steal the glory of God in heaven, who has now been cast down to earth. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 says, he took a third of the angels with him. Angels, these created beings who were there to serve God and to worship God, a third of them fell with Satan. And the result was Satan's fall and the angels fall. They were cast away from God and his desire is to be like God. 
And in his desire to be like God, he became more unlike God than he possibly ever could have imagined. But though cast out of heaven, Satan is not done. Though cast out of heaven, he is still trying to steal the glory away from God. He is actively working against God's kingdom, and thus he presents himself to Adam and Eve in the garden. His one objective is to corrupt God's creation, and his primary target is the pinnacle of God's creation, man. He wants to steal the glory from God. He wants to do it one person at a time. Now, we're not dualists. By that, I mean this. We must remember that Satan is created. He is not the equal and opposite of God. Many people have this concept that Satan is is the opposite of God. Satan is not the opposite of God. He is not omniscient. He He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipowerful. He doesn't know everything. He can't be everywhere. He doesn't have all power. God has all of those things. He is a created being who chose to rebel against God and has pulled down a third of the angels with him. And look at the chaos that is happening in our world today because people are buying the lies that he sold to Eve in the garden. They're still buying them today. Not only is created, he is crafty. He says to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Uh, Satan's tricky. His strategy is to tell half-truths. His strategy is to tempt. And it's the same strategy that he used there, he still uses today. You know why he hasn't changed his strategy? Because it still works, really really well. So he starts her down, down a a slippery slope, and he makes her question, did God really say that? Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree of the garden? And he wants her to begin to doubt God's word. Cunningly twisted misrepresentation of what God actually said. Because if you look In chapter 2, as God gives them the garden, he says, look at everything I've given you. You can eat from any of the trees in this garden. Look at the provision. And God's emphasis was on his provision. You can have any of this. I just ask of you, don't eat of that one tree. God's emphasis was on provision. Satan turns it around, and instead of focusing on God's provision, what does he focus on? The one prohibition. Did God really say you couldn't eat from all these trees? And Satan was slyly insinuating that not only was God to be doubted, but God was to be distrusted. Because apparently God was trying to hold something back. And he wanted her to move from doubting God to distrusting his character. God's withholding something from you. He's keeping something back, and he's slyly insinuating that he has her best interest at heart. God doesn't want freedom in your life. I want you to have freedom, Satan said. You can't trust him. You can trust me. He implied that he was offering freedom, and only God was offering restrictions. He still uses that same slippery slope today. God's word can't be trusted. God's not good. God doesn't care for you. He's just a cosmic killjoy that wants to steal all the joy out of your life. You can't do this and you can't do that. You can't do this and you can't do that. If you follow me, you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whoever you want to be. There are no rules. Do whatever you want. There's absolutely no authority. Does this sound familiar? Sounds like the world we live in today. Verses 2 and 3, the woman said, now hold up. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will surely die. And then we just get to the heart of it, verse 4. Satan just outright lies to her. You surely will not die. 
John 8, chapter 44 tells us, or chap, John chapter 8, verse 44 tells us that Satan is a liar. As a matter of fact, it tells us he is the father of lies. And he outright lied to Eve, and he lies to us today because the lie was there is no judgment for disobeying God. You can do whatever you want. There's no consequence for it. You can live any way you want. doesn't matter. There is no judgment for going against God's word. He told you you're going to die. You're not going to die. That's not going to happen. And then verse 5, for God knows that on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eye and desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit, ate it, and gave some to her husband. She's just fell down that slippery slope. She went from doubt to distrust to outright disobedience. Because she had been sold a bill of goods, you can do whatever you want. There's no consequence. So just live any way you want to. And the whole conversation started this way. Hey, Eve, let's talk about what God said. What do you think about it and how do you feel about it? That's where we get ourselves in trouble. When Satan tells us, this is what God says, what do you think about it? How do you feel about it? The assumption is that what God has to say is somehow subjected to our assessment or evaluation for approval. That we don't just take it at face value because it's from God. No, we get to evaluate whether it's true or not. We get to evaluate whether we should obey it or not. We get to evaluate whether it's good enough or not. This is human pride. This is pride saying, I don't care who God is, he doesn't get to tell me what I do, I get to decide what I do. And we make the decision to disobey God because we find his truths to be inconvenient or maybe too antiquated. And my, man wants to decide what's right and wrong in our own lives. By the way, just look at how Satan refers to God in this passage as opposed to how God is referred to through the rest of the passage. In, ver in chapter 2 and verse 3, just notice how God is referred to in this passage and then how Satan refers to him. Go back to chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord God. Verse 5, the Lord God. Verse 7, the Lord God. Verse 8, the Lord God. Verse 9, the Lord God. Verse 15, the Lord God. Verse 16, the Lord God. Verse 18, the Lord God. Verse 19, the Lord God. Verse 21, the Lord God. Verse 22, the Lord God. Chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord God. Chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord God. Verse 9, the Lord God. Verse 13, the Lord God. Verse 14, the Lord God. Verse 21, the Lord God. Verse 22, the Lord God. Verse 23, the Lord God. Are you getting the theme? Chapter 3, verse 1, Satan refers to God and he says, Indeed, has God said to you? Chapter, or chapter 3, verse 5, For God knows in the day. All throughout this passage, it's the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. When Satan refers to him, he doesn't mention the Lord God. The name Lord means he is sovereign. The name Lord means he's in control. That's the truth of who God is, and that's the truth that Satan does not want to acknowledge and does not want you to acknowledge. He says, I'm just going to leave that part of it out. I don't want God in his rightful place in my life, and I don't want him in his rightful place in your life either. And Satan tempted man with the same thing that tempted him. Man, you don't have to put God in his rightful place. And he did so knowing that the results that he was promising them were empty. Hey, when you do this, you're going to know right from wrong, and God doesn't want you to know right from wrong. And Satan knew that that wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Because he's not just talking about intellectual knowledge of this is right, this is wrong. It's talking about experiential knowledge of experiencing right from wrong. It's experiencing the difference between holiness and the lack of holiness evil. 
And I promise you, when Adam and Eve sinned, they not only had a knowledge of what right and wrong was, they had the experience of what right and wrong is. And you're absolutely right. God does not want you to have that experience. Immediately upon the fall, decay and corruption come into the world. We've seen the setting. We've seen the source. We've seen a serpent and sin. Let's just quickly talk about suffering because chapter 3 changes everything. This account is the saddest event in history because in it changes everything. It corrupts everything. God's perfect creation is compromised. All problems, all pain, all wrong, all evil, all immorality, all decay, all lying, trouble, disease, discomfort, remorse, regret, conflict, hate, jealousy, anger, fear, vengeance crime, deception, terror, all stems from this one event. And the reason for imperfection in our world is because of the absence of holiness. In chapters 1 and 2, we see God's creation, his kingdom as he intended to be. In chapter 3 and beyond, we see creation not as God intends for it to be. Because sin separates Sin spoils and sin spreads. Sin separates, it spoils, and it spreads. And I don't have time to unpack this completely for you this morning, but hear this. When they sinned, multiple relationships were broken immediately. Man's relationship with God was immediately broken. Verse 8 says that God was walking around in the garden of the cool of the day, and he had to cry out for Adam and Eve, where are you? And they were hiding themselves from God. Before, they were in complete, perfect fellowship with him. Now they are in shame and hiding from him. And that relationship is broken. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. The Bible says it clearly, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Did Adam and Eve immediately die? Not physically, but spiritually their relationship with God was completely torn asunder. Not only was there a broken relationship between man and God, notice there's also a broken relationship between man and wife. God asked Adam, why, why are you hiding? Did you eat from that tree? Remember what he said? That woman you gave me gave me some fruit and I ate it. Man, he threw her under the bus as quick as he possibly could. And I promise you, your marriage, (laughs) when you have struggles in your marriage, right here. I could unpack that a little bit more. I'm just going to keep moving. Um, (laughs) Broken relationship between man and God. Broken relationship between man and wife, between spouse. There's a broken relationship between man and nature. As part of the curse, verses 17 through 19, Adam, who had been tilling the ground in the garden, God now says the ground is going to be filled with weeds and thorns, and it's going to be difficult. Your job isn't part of the curse. Your job being difficult is part of the curse. If we get to chapter 4, we find that brother and brother, that relationship is broken. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. They both bring an offering before God. God receives one offering, rejects the other one, and Cain kills his brother. It takes us one chapter to move from sin to murder. Man and life are separated. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, God said, eat from any of tree. Don't eat from that one tree, because if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Satan tells Eve, surely you're not going to die. Look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. Adam lived so many years, he had sons, and then he did what? Died. Keep reading that whole chapter. Paragraph after paragraph, so-and-so lived, they had so many children, last word of the paragraph, and he died. 
Next paragraph, so-and-so lived, had so many children, and he died over and over and over and over again as if God is saying, oh, really? You don't think you're going to die? Let me just show you. Sin separates, sin spoils, and sin spreads. Genesis chapter 6, if we just keep going, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Which leads to the flood, Genesis chapter 7. And God destroying his creation in order to restart. That is, except for one righteous man who God gave a boat, a way through the judgment. The kingdom of God is God's people living in God's place, in God's presence, under God's laws, enjoying God's provision and God's blessing, but the kingdom of God has been compromised, and yet God still sits on his throne, and God is still in control, and God still rules, and God hasn't gone, oh no, now what do I do, as if the sin of Satan caught him by surprise, as if our sin catches him off guard. He knows exactly what he is doing, and one day he will reorder his creation as he intends it to eternally be. And we'll start next week and look at the Old Testament and look at the idea of redemption. Because even in the midst of all of this brokenness, we see hints of the solution because God has a solution to my sin. God has a solution to the chaos that's in our lives. In chapter 3, we see that God provided a covering. They were embarrassed, so they sewed fig leaves together. God said, that's not adequate. And so he had to sacrifice an animal and gave a covering to them. It's a picture of what, was taken, what would take place later. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is called the Proto-Evangelium, the very first giving of the gospel when he tells Satan that the seed of Eve will one day crush his head. It's a picture of who Jesus Christ is. Genesis chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, at the end of this chapter, God kicks him out of the garden. And many people look at that and go, that's the curse. God was punishing them, so he kicked them out of the garden. But read it very carefully. It said God cast them out of the garden, and he put an angel guarding the garden so that they would not have access to what? tree of life. Because if they had access to tree of life, they would have had eternal life, and they would have had it eternally in their fallen state. And God says, I do not want that for you, so you're no longer to have access to that tree. It's part of God's grace. You know the next time we see the uh, tree of life show back up? The new heaven and new earth, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, when God puts it back the way it's supposed to be, and we once again have access to the tree of life. We see glimpses of this. Genesis chapter 4, the sacrifice that is acceptable to God and a sacrifice that is not acceptable to God. Genesis chapter 5, in the midst of all of that judgment, and he died, and he died, and he died, we meet a man named Enoch. And in verse 24 it says, and he was no more because he walked with God. Right in the middle of judgment we see grace. Genesis chapter 6, there's a flood coming, but God sees one man and he gives him a boat and provides the way through. In fact, the remainder of the book, the remainder of the book from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Revelation chapter 22 is all about God's redemption of his fallen creation. Whew, I need a donut. <laughs> it's a slippery slope. It's the same lie that Satan told in the garden still works today. You can't trust God, can't believe his word, you can disobey him without consequence. What should Eve have said to Satan when he came up and was all crafty with her? Perhaps he should have, she should have said, I, I don't know you, but I know God. And he's provided all of this for me. I have his presence. I have his provision. I have everything I need. Go away. Don't doubt God. Don't doubt his goodness. Don't distrust his character. 
And don't be disobedient. Don't buy the lie that Satan still is telling. Don't be fooled. Satan is a created being. He's not the exact opposite of God, and he has no power over you that you don't allow him to have. But hear me, don't do it on your own. Because uh, he's not God, but he's stronger than I am. He's more crafty than I am. He's more smart than I am. He, he can do all these things. But greater is he that is in me than he's who's in this world. And Lord, I need you every single hour. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so good. And Father, as we look at our world and we try to come to grips with, with chaos and we try to come to grips with evil, Father, we acknowledge that you are good and have created all things, but we know that because you are good, you did not create evil. We know that evil is not something that was created. It's not the existence of something. It is the absence of th something, and that absence is your goodness, your holiness, your perfection. And so, Father, as we look at our world and we see all these things going on, we, we understand that it's an absence of goodness. But, Father, we also thank you for grace. We thank you that you cover us with your blood of your Son, and you take our sin away. And Father, you are not pleased with your sin, with, with, with your creation being corrupted by sin. Father, I think of so many passages in the New Testament where Jesus was literally broken over the people before him who were hurting because of disease and destruction in their lives. Father, this is not how you intend your creation to be. And one day you will return and you will set it right. But Father, right now we live under grace because you are giving us the opportunity to tell others, don't buy the lies of Satan. God is a good God. Trust him. Follow him. Time of commitment this morning is this. We need God all the time. Because on our own, I'm going to give in to temptation. On my own, I'm going to fall almost every single time. My willpower only gets me so far. So I would just ask that as a church, we would pray and we would seek God and say, God, I want to be holy as best I can through your power. And so God, I need you every hour to make me right holy with you. Maybe you've never entered into a relationship with God. Maybe you didn't know he cared that much about you that he would send someone to die in your place. We're going to stand, we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. That's the best thing you could ever say. Because Satan's going to lie to you and say, you don't need what that guy's talking about. I know you do. There's a room filled with people who would testify to you. Just trust in Christ. He makes all the difference. I'll be down front. There'll be some other folks as we stand and sing in just a minute. Maybe you just want to come and pray and say, God, I need you. Maybe you want to come and say, Pastor, I don't even know what that means really, but I think I need Jesus. Will you help me understand that? Father, you take this time of invitation. Be glorified in it, we pray. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing together. If you want to come and pray, if you want to talk, you respond as God's Holy Spirit leads you. Oh
close to you. When temptation comes my way, and when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Represent him well this week. Love you guys. Guest stop by the guest reception on the way out. We'd love to meet you personally. Show us, show us your glory. Show us, show us your power. Show us, show us your glory. Yeah. 